The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. All right, let's go now to a very timely word uh, from Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through chapter 13, verse 6. At that time his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? This is the word of God. This morning we're going to look at um, 12:26 through 13:2, and then over the next week or two we'll look at uh, the remainder of the chapters. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask for his mercy uh, as we move forward. Father, we can't thank you enough for your constant presence with us as your people. Uh, Your church has been under fire through the centuries, through the ages. Lord Jesus, they killed you, our king, our brother, and our friend. And yet, because you live, we have hope to face tomorrow. Because you live, uh, the fear is pushed out. Because you live, we have a future. And today is not our ultimate reality. And so we thank you for giving us a hope that is beyond this world. And yet we thank you for your presence that is our stability and our strength in the face of all that we face in this world. And so, God, in the next few minutes, we pray that you would come by your spirit and open our hearts to have eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious hope of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would lift up your son in this place this morning, that he might receive glory and honor and praise that you would teach us what a life looks like that is centered upon your worship, and that, Father, you might change our minds and our hearts, and we might be more motivated and even empowered to go out and to be the people of God in this city and in this dark world. Father, thank you so much for your presence. It is our very life, and we um, lean heavily and deeply and totally into you now. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you do when you're beat up, beat down, and thrown around? I can't relate uh, to being in that context at all, uh, but the believers in Rome could. When the writer of Hebrews wrote his um, words to the church in in Rome, um, these Jewish believers, these these Jews who had grown up living a very uh, religious life, um, and they're then came to believe in the Messiah and therefore became Christians out of Judaism, Um, as soon as they did that, their lives got incredibly worse. 
uh, Nero, the ruler of Rome, the, the king of Rome, the, the top dog of Rome, said that there would be no rivalry for his throne. In fact, you could not bow down, you could not declare that there was anyone higher, anyone greater than Nero. And the very essence of Christianity is to say we worship Christ, we worship the risen Christ, He is our life, He is our King, He is our Lord, and we bow down everything that we have to Him. And so Nero uh, unleashed an unmerciful attack upon the church. And everything that they deemed stable, job, houses, children, parents, their own lives, everything that they deemed as... um, as stable and, and, and as the essence of living was taken away from them or at least threatened. And yet in the midst of that, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Verse 29, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship in reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let us worship out of gratitude. Really? I can be honest with you, that has not been my attitude jumping out of bed every morning this week. And yet that is what the writer of Hebrews tells us is to be our activity in the midst of seasons when everything seems to be threatened. You are to be grateful and you are to offer a God, offer to God, your worship out of a heart that is filled with awe and reverence. And so let's look at how we might do that this morning. The first thing I think we need to see that gives us, I I think really helps us understand the wisdom of this, is that we need to understand that the object of our worship becomes clear in crisis, loss, and suffering. What you are really trusting in, what the, the real... Uh, the, the thing or the one that really has capture of your heart becomes evident in the midst of everything else in life being threatened. I went to a workshop this past Friday. I signed up for it two months ago. Uh, it was a workshop in Nashville uh, that the Bethesda um, ministry was putting on, and it was on sexual addiction, ironically. And as I sat there listening and learning... Um, about addiction and sexual addiction and how to minister to those in addiction and sexual addiction, what I realize is that addiction is all-consuming. That to be an addict to something, to be addicted to something, uh, you have to be all-in. Your, your whole mind and heart and soul, everything that you have must be geared toward uh, being consumed and captivated by whatever it is that you're addicted to or by. And what I learned from that are two things. The first is this. We are by nature worshipers. All of us are born to worship. That is what we were made to do. We can't help it. Right now, this morning, everybody in this room and everybody in this world is worshiping. The only question is, what are you worshiping? And if it's not God, then it will not have the capacity and the power to sustain your worship. And so when we are in times of great suffering and trial, when our world seems to be shaking and and everything seems to be up in the air, you better have something that is going to sustain you that you cannot lose. 
And you can lose everything this side of God. And, and what's interesting is, is that most of the things that most of us get addicted to are good things. Sex is a good thing. Food is a good thing. Material stuff, good things. Church, good things. Trusting in leadership, good things. And yet, if they are your ultimate things, they will let you down. Why? Because there's only one that will not let, your, let you down, and his name is Jesus. That's the thrust of the gospel. The gospel says there is one that we worship. There is one that we can go all in with, and he will not let us down. So what is the object of your worship? That is what must sustain you. And for the Christian, it is Jesus. You see, if it's not Jesus, everything in you is going to be fearful. Everything in you is going to be skeptical. You're going to find yourself reacting and and going to extremes and drowning in anxiety when suffering and trials or the things that you worship are being threatened. But only God can sustain you. Only God can, can hold you up and hold up under the pressure of your worship when everything else is threatening Him. Because He is a sure hope. That is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. Let us, therefore, what? Fix our eyes on Jesus. How do, you, how do you survive suffering, trials, and loss? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I mean, th- this is where it drives us. Why? Two things. Jesus is a superior present hope, and Jesus is a superior future hope. First, he's a superior present hope. Listen to chapter 4 of Hebrews 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is a present need. Why? Because he is a superior high priest. What in the world does that mean? It means very little to us unless we grew up in a Jewish tradition. See, the the Jewish believers in, in Rome understood exactly what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Because they were used to growing up taking um, animals to the high priest for sacrifice. They were used to, on the Day of Atonement, coming to the high priest, bringing their sacrifices, and trusting him to make sacrifices for them so that God, they, so that, so that God would res, extend to them forgiveness and acceptance. And so the forgiveness of God's people, the acceptance of God for God's people, was all riding on the back of the high priest. And he took it on his back, and he marched into the Holy of Holies, and he threw blood on, uh, uh, on the altar, and he made sacrifices to God for the people. 
But we have a high priest who didn't take animals. We have a high priest who was righteous in every way, though tempted. And he went into the temple and he offered himself. And the Father received him so perfectly that the temple curtain was torn in two. It was blown wide open. And God was saying, no longer do you need to come and trust a man. Because I have given you my son. And so no matter what you have done, he has paid it all. All to him I owe. Do you see it? You see, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have a superior present hope. Because when everything around you seems to be crumbling, Jesus is present. And you can have intimacy with him. Have you experienced that intimacy with him throughout this past week? Have you drawn near to Him? You see, we're drawing near to something. Is it the papers? Is it the doctor's report? Is it the, 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 the games that you play in your own mind about some, some future that you're predicting is going to happen? Or are you going to what is known as true, the eternal Word of God, where Christ says, I am for you and I will not leave you, and that is your reality? Do you see, in times of suffering, no one can steal that from us. So it's superior to any other hope, even the good hopes that we have. But it's also a superior future hope. I have never sifted for gold. And yet, I have watched people on TV do it, and it seems like what they do is they take a box with a screen in the bottom. And they get in a river and they they dig up some of the stuff from the bottom of the river and then they lift it up and the water drains out and they kind of shake it around and what happens? All the worthless stuff comes through and what is left? The gold. And that's the image that came to my mind as I read this over and over this week. That, that God has and will one day, even the heavens, put it all in a box and shake it all up and, and all the worthless stuff will be, will, will fall to the ground and what will be left is His kingdom stuff. Namely you and me. Namely all the goodness of a new heaven and a new earth. And man, don't we long for that day. That is what we all want so desperately. Will you just shake off the haters? Will you just shake off all the bad stuff? I don't want to have to go to the hospital and care for an aging parent. I don't want to get a phone call of somebody losing their life. I don't want to be betrayed. I don't want to have to deal with court systems. And I don't want to have to watch friends suffering in poverty. I don't want to have to think about children dying of starvation in other countries. I don't want to to have to think about ISIS and and, and all that. I don't want to have to think about all this. Well, guess what? There's coming a day when Jesus will put it all in the box and He will shake it and the only thing standing will be His kingdom. And that is incredible hope in times like this because it feels like we're being shaken, but no. We're not. We're just being shaken. We're not being destroyed. We're not coming through the bottom. And God is affirming that He is with us and He is for us. And that is our hope. It's a future day. It's not today. I was reading something this week that said that most people especially in the West, primarily in the West, their whole goal in life, what drives them every day, is simply for their dreams to come true in that day. 
I said, okay, I'm a little guilty of that. And yet, as the Christian, we've got to adjust that. Our dreams will come true, but not perfectly and totally until heaven. Not perfectly and totally until glory. And in the meantime, we have the one who is our dream and his name is Jesus. Is that your hope this morning? Then that must be the essence of your worship. Secondly, acceptable worship, if these things are true about you, is going to be motivated by gratitude. Worship is motivated by gratitude. When Rachel and I were raising our girls, uh, we've given them all, all away now. We don't have to think about them anymore. Uh, what a blessing that is. Uh, two of my girls are here uh, this morning. And yet when they could attest this morning that we and maybe Rachel more than me, um, maybe it's a girl thing or maybe she's just more godly than I, but um, we would discipline for attitude as much as action. In other words, if we said, take your plates to the kitchen and, and do the dishes, if there was any moping or moaning, oh, buddy, I mean, you better watch out. And I remember many moments when they were asked to do something and there was a little pushback and I was thinking, oh, buddy, here it comes, you know. It's all now. Why is that? Why does that bother us as parents? Why does attitude bother us? Because, because we have provided everything for this human being that we're asking to do one small thing. We have given them clothes. We, my wife has given them birth. My, we, we have given them, you know, vacations. We've given them a bed to lay their bottom on. We, we've given them schools. We've given them education. We've given them love. We've given them nurture. There is nothing in their lives that they can say, I did and it's mine and you can't. Everything they have has been given to them. And so when you're asked to go do the dishes, you better do it gladly. You better do it in worship and praise of your parents. <laughs> The ones who have given it all to you. Well, that works for children. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is it works for adults too. You see, let us with gratitude, let's be grateful for this permanent kingdom that God has already given us in Christ. Let us live grateful lives. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Even our terminology there of our salvation is, is so telling. We say what? God has saved us. Saved us from what? He saved us from damnation. God has given us life. From what? From death. I mean, something radical has happened that we just described in, in my first point. If these things are true and real, then sullen, a sullen, gloomy Christian is a contradiction of terms. You cannot be sullen and gloomy if you are simultaneously believing the truth of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Yes, in times of suffering, in times of trial, even in times of loss, yes, you are to remember your hope and be gratefully worshiping the God of heaven and earth. Because that hasn't changed. He is still God. He is still good. And the gifts that He's given you have not gone away. Do you see that? I love what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, So, 
if there's any encouragement from being in Christ. I love that. I mean, that sounds like a parent right there. Okay, if there's, if you've gotten any encouragement from being in Christ, who literally saved your soul, lived the life you uh, should have lived uh, but didn't, and then took punishment for the life you did live, and if there's any encouragement from being in Christ, isn't that beautiful? Any comfort from His love? Are you kidding me? Any participation in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy? Then complete my joy by being of the same mind. Children, get along. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. I love it. I love his sarcasm. It gives freedom for me to be sarcastic in a good way. Because uh, I'm often in a bad way. If there's any encouragement in Christ, then have the same mind. Do you see it? Paul says the righteous shall live by faith from first to last. What does he mean by that? He means that righteous living, a heart full of gratitude, a heart full of love, a heart full of a mind for other people is going to come when you're believing the gospel is true and real for you. And that's why the Christian life is ongoing. It's our sanctification. It's our growth in, in, in Christian living and Christian growing. We have to do it by faith because we have to believe in deeper and new and, and different ways the truths of God that have been set forth and never change. That's what growing as a Christian means. This past week, these last few days, I've had to, to relearn. I've had to learn new things of what it means to believe that my God and my Father is good and present. Do you see? And that's growing me. It's disciplining me. I, I'm, I'm training for a marathon. I've started training for a marathon. Why am I doing it? I ran nine miles yesterday. I could barely walk the rest of the day. Why did I do that? Because I hope that in the coming days it will make me stronger to run further so on the day that I have to run the marathon, I can do it. So why does God discipline us? Why does God put us through stuff so that to kill us, to abandon us? No. So that in the middle of it, the truths that we know to be true become existentially true to us. They become experientially true. I preach, God is all I need. I can tell you in the last few days, that has become much more real to me than in previous days. Do you see it? That's what God does with his people. And it's good. And it's what he must do. And in the midst of this, we must live by faith. Paul asked the question to the Galatian church in four, chapter 4 and verse 15 of uh, Galatians. He said, what has happened to all your blessedness? I mean, that is a diagnostic question for us as the church. It, what has happened to all your blessedness? And, and blessedness, that, that word is used in the Beatitudes. Jesus uses that word. He says, blessed are. And what he means by that is not giddy and happy. It's not, oh, life's falling apart, look at the consequences, ha, ha, ha. No, it's lament the curse, lament and, 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 and cry and weep and bring tears. But in the midst of that, the purpose of that is to re-believe the realities that our hope is not there, our hope is here. And so that is what... That is what um, uh, Paul is referring to in Galatians. What's happened to your blessedness? You're acting like and, and living like you don't have hope. It's not. You're not. He's not saying you're not. You know, being giddy and skipping around. He's saying you're not showing the world that you've got a greater hope. And why weren't they? 
because they were adding stuff to the work of Christ. They were adding religion to the work of Christ. They were telling, telling Gentiles that they had to be circumcised. In other words, they had to become good, outward-conforming Jews in order to be accepted inside the Christian church. Believe in Jesus and look like a good Jew. And Paul said, you've abandoned the whole gospel. This is no gospel at all. This is from the pit of hell. Because what happens when we start adding religiosity to Christ, then we start becoming self-righteous. And the whole thrust of the gospel is to move us from being self-righteous to being righteous, uh, dependent upon the righteousness of Christ so that we can love others and God. That takes us to our third point. The embodiment of worship is love. And this is so powerful, folks. We're going to spend at least two chapters, or two chapters, two weeks on the next several verses, verses one and following, especially verses one through six in chapter 13. Because what God is, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he is showing a Jewish people what new worship looks like. What did worship look like as a Jew? Well, go read Leviticus. I tried and I fall asleep by chapter three. Right, exactly. Because all the details. Oh, so exhausting. Okay. Well, you want to know what New Testament worship looks like? Let brotherly love continue. You be a community of love. It's not just what we do here on Sunday morning, although this attributes to our worship throughout the week. This is encouragement that we might go out and continue worship. But this isn't the worship of God's people, period. This is the worship of God's people in the midst of the worship of God's people in the world. You see, I had to go to Joni Erickson Tata this past Friday. I often go and read her quotes and her material um, when I'm down or when I'm facing tough times. Why? Because when a woman who was paralyzed as a teenager and who's now, I think, older than I, uh, you know, and, and had breast cancer a few uh, a couple of years ago, when, when that woman tells me the hope of Christ, it just hits me harder. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, maybe because we don't imagine or we, we don't expect a woman who has spent her the, the, her adult life, at least, in a wheelchair, who also got breast cancer, to be praising God and giving the promises of God out freely. And yet that's exactly what she's been doing. And so I went to her work and her words, and, and one thing that I saw was that when she got breast cancer, a reporter asked her if her theology had changed. And she said, no. Said, I, I, my theology has been settled a long time ago. And she said, as a matter of fact, when most people ask, ask me that question, what they're really asking me is, do you believe the promises of Jesus, uh, like in John 14, where he told his disciples that, hey, you're going to do greater works than these, you know? And she said, most people look at that and they think, well, um, what Jesus is saying is, is that we're going to be able to heal people and there will be no Christians in wheelchairs. And what she said was, no, that's not the miracle that he's talking about. That's not the greater things. He said, she said, you see the greater things right after Pentecost. The Spirit comes, and what happens? Peter, the, the, the bumbling idiot, the, the one who's, who's, whose mouth is always running before his brain, and uh, the one who's always messing up, and yet Peter preaches a Peter of all people preaches a sermon, and thousands are converted. She said, that is the miracle that Jesus was pointing to. And she said, since I've had breast cancer, 
I have had an a, a, a exponentially more uh, opportunities to share my faith in Jesus. Why? Because people come to me and they're treating me, a doctor, a nurse, an x-ray technician, someone administering chemotherapy. They come to me and they say, I'm blown away by your attitude. I'm blown away by, by there's just something different about you. Can you. What is that? She said, I can't tell you how many opportunities I've had to point to Jesus and say he is the reason for my hope and the foundation of my blessedness, if you will. You see it? You see, what Johnny Erickson Tata was saying is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Let brotherly love continue when the world is falling down around you. Why? Because Christ has saved us for this, that we might show the world there is one that you can believe in, and even when your life is crumbling, you can still be held up in the blessed joy of knowing that your hope is sure and certain and confident. Isn't that beautiful? So the the question to us today is, do we have our joy and are we expressing it in love? Because nobody expects downtown church right now to be thinking about them. Everybody expects us to be having uh, private meetings and dark rooms and pulling the shades down and thinking about ourselves. And what I'm saying is, no. Christ hasn't called us to self-protection. Christ has called us to make disciples of the world. Christ hadn't called us to shrink back in fear and again focus on us. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, my gosh. No. He said, what? Really? I mean, what did Jesus do? He had Judas among him for three years whose kiss led to his death. And what did he do? He rose from the ground. <laughs> He's saying, don't stop doing what I've called you to do. I've empowered you for times like this. I have saved you for times like this. Show the world the hope that is in you by being different than the world. Isn't that beautiful? He says, let brotherly love continue. He uses the word Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love. That's how we know it today. And in that, then that, it, it, it seems kind of lame to us. Ah, let brotherly love continue. Let's think about that for a minute. The Christian is to love his fellow believer as if he is his own brother. Have we done that? I read a statistic recently. The Associated Press released this. It says, the median wealth of white U.S. households in 2009 was $113,149. The median wealth of white households, $113,149. And $113, the median wealth of black households, 5677 Now, have we treated our Christian brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters? Do you see, this is not to heap guilt. This is to throw this text in the midst of our historical context and say, we have not done this. And because we have not done this, the world stands back and is bored with the church. Because we have not been the people of God. What does it look like to be the people of God? It looks like self-sacrificing love. 
And then he goes on and he says in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, this is brotherly love is Philadelphia. Hospitality is Philoxenia. Okay? It's bad enough or hard enough if, if God just says, Okay, church of Memphis, love each other. But he goes beyond that. He says, don't just be a community of Philadelphia, brotherly love, but you are to be a community of Philoxenia. Don't just be concerned about, uh, uh, you know, the, the church in Memphis, but be concerned about those outside of the church and love the world as you love your brothers and sisters. Wow. Unbelievable. And yet, imagine if we worship God in that way. Imagine if we exhibited Philadelphia and Philoxenia, brotherly love and hospitality to strangers. Do you think the world might stand back in awe and reverence and say, tell us about this God that you serve? Ah, it's so powerful. And then, I love this this whole mention of angels. By some, by doing so, some have entertained angels. What is he referring to? He's referring clearly to Abraham and Sarah when they welcomed the three strangers that came to their tent and they fed them and they were turned out they were actually angels. And uh, you see what Abraham did, he wasn't uh, displaying Philadelphia, he was he was displaying Philoxenia. He didn't know these guys. I mean, he invited strangers into his house. He put his wife in danger. He put he was exhibiting Philoxenia to these strangers. And yet he says, by doing so, some have entertained angels. Now, why did he bring up the whole angel thing? Because if we go back throughout the book of Hebrews, it's obvious that, that the Christians uh, were, were fascinated by angels and captivated by angels. And they wanted to all experience an angel uh, because they thought that that would just be fantastic. And that would somehow, uh, um, you know, make them grow as a, as a Christian or something. I don't know. But they were just consumed with wanting to experience angels. And what... The writer of Hebrews begins the book by saying is this. He's lifting up Jesus above angels. He says, Jesus is the radiance of God's, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, you don't need an angel. Look at Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, what angel has done that? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work was completed. And having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is beautiful. He's saying, stop your fascination with angels and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The, the primary source or the primary purpose of an angel is to declare glory and, and, and to divert attention to Jesus, not themselves. And then he says, okay, if you really want to experience angels, exhibit Philoxenia. And I can just imagine, okay, eh, it's kind of like today. You bring up justice, fighting for the oppressed and the, the, the marginalized, and eh, okay, I'm not as, yeah, that doesn't sound like exciting Christianity. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is dealing with here. He said, you want to experience angels, then welcome strangers into your house. And you can almost hear the deflation in the room. <laughs> and, and the Christian's going, 
Okay, we don't want any angels anymore. Uh, we're done with that. You know, if that means giving my life away, if that means sacrificing my wealth, if that means standing for the marginalized, if that means going to court with those who can't defend themselves, if that means thinking about the housing needs of the poor, if that, uh, if I have to think about the education of not just my children but the children of that, do you see it? Nah. Okay, I don't want any angels. And that's so brilliant what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. And so, friends, what do you do when you're beat up, you're beat down, and you're thrown around? Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. And, and exhibit hospitality to strangers. And be the people of God. And don't be distracted by all the noise and all the accusation. And don't let fear overcome you, but draw near to Christ in faith. Because we have a superior hope. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus has ascended. And Jesus is coming back. His kingdom cannot be shaken. No one can steal this beautiful treasure from us. And so may we, may we store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. And may we live like the people of God, that the world might know that He is worthy of worship. May it be true at Downtown Church. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank You. We thank You that we have a hope beyond this world, that our accusers can scream and write and do all they can to incite fear, but we know that God is in His holy temple. You are not biting your nails, O oh God. <laughs> You're not going to counselors like we are. You aren't fretting. You aren't worried about tomorrow and the future. Because you hold it in your sovereign hand. And we praise you that you have given us the end of the story. We know how it ends. We know that you win. And because you win, your people win. So God, would you somehow get glory in the midst of our present suffering? Would you somehow bring praise to yourself? Help us not mess it up, O oh God. But help us to show the world what it looks like to love and, and sacrifice and give ourselves away. And not fear. And not fret. And not drown in anxiety. And we lift these things to you. And we pray that you would use the gifts that we bring to further your kingdom. And to build your church in Memphis and beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.